Right, I could turn with me to Second Samuel. Um, for those of you who are visiting, let me just say that we've been working our way through Second Samuel um, over the last number of, I was going to say weeks, it's probably months now, is it? Uh, on Sunday evenings. We're looking at the life of David and aspects of that. And this evening um, we will shortly read Second um, Samuel chapter 22 and Second Samuel, part of Second Samuel chapter 23. But before that, I need to just explain a little bit of the context so that when we read this, you'll immediately be able to work with it and work on it as you hear it or read it and follow it. And um, it would be worth just keeping your place there in Second Samuel and flicking over to Psalm 18, um, just to have a quick look at Psalm 18, which you'll find on page 551. Um, and as you look at Psalm 18 and page 551, um, I want you just to notice the uh, little bit that comes at the beginning before the actual text of the psalm itself, uh, where it gives us a bit of background to this psalm. And it talks about a psalm for the director of music of David, the servant of the Lord. He sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said... And then it goes on for quite a number of verses, about 50 verses, um, to extol God's goodness and God's faithfulness. Let's just read the first six verses of it, where it says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to the Lord, cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. The earth trembled and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. And so the psalm goes on. Now, I take you to that simply to give you the context of Psalm 18. And the context, as it says there, is really the, the, the time whenever Saul's kingdom was established, or David's kingdom was established. He had taken over from Saul. He was now king of not only the northern kingdom, but the kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Judah, but also the northern kingdom as well. And it was a period when many of his surrounding enemies had been subdued. So that's the context to Psalm 18. And I take you there because if you go back to 2 Samuel 22, you'll find that really 2 Samuel 22 is the same psalm. It's the same portion of scripture virtually, word for word. And uh, it'll give just a little bit of the context because if uh, you're familiar with what we've been doing, you'll know that at this point we've really come to the end of the David story. There's a little bit to come as he hands over to Solomon, but the bulk of his reign and his victories and his troubles when Absalom sought to take the throne and Sheba also, a Benjamite, revolted against him. All of that has sort of come to an end now. And we're in a little bit of material here which is slightly different. So it belongs to different periods. I've got a slide here which will really just explain what's happening in these chapters from chapter 21 to the end of Second Samuel. And... Um, you, you can think about this like going up a set of steps and down the other side, if you like. This is a very common thing that happens in the Old Testament in terms of the way it's structured and written. And it's done for a reason, just so that as you watch the structure, you can see what's actually happening. 
So don't think of 2 Samuel 21 to the end of 2 Samuel as just a collection of what didn't fit in the rest of the text. That would be to misunderstand what's going on here. There's a very clear progression to what's actually happening here. So we have in 2 Samuel 21, which we looked at last Sunday night, Saul's murder of the Gibeonites and the consequences that arose from that. So it's a reference to Saul's sin. And the bit we haven't looked at yet, which is the bit at the end of uh, 2 Samuel 21, is a record of some of David's battles and some of the great heroes. And they're all, some of them are named in there and the exploits that they carried out. And then in 2 Samuel 22, the next very distinct thing we have is this song of praise, the psalm of praise to God, which comes from very early in David's reign. And it will be set against... Um, David's last words, which is the heading, if you'll notice there at the very beginning of Second uh, Samuel 23, that the editors have put into the NIV text, um, which is simply a, a, a reflection of how they are placed and how they are understood to fit in all of this. And then after that, you'll get a repeat of not the same stories, different stories, but a repeat of the same kind of thing, a record of some of the battles and some of the great heroes that fought with David. And then when we get to the last chapter of Second Samuel, we'll be introduced to one of David's great mistakes, um, another one of David's great mistakes. Second Samuel doesn't hide them. So you can see what's happening here. It's a bit like you know, Saul's sin, record of battles and heroes, psalm of praise, psalm at the end of David's life, heroes and battles, and David's sin. And it's just a little mechanism that's used to say this isn't just random stuff thrown in here because it doesn't fit anywhere else. We want you to see what's happening. Now, the core bit, the middle bit, are these two passages of 2 Samuel 22 and 2 Samuel 23, the first part of it. And just bear that in mind as we think about these this evening. They're put here for a reason. They're not simply put all together here at this point to break up the flow of the earlier text or simply to keep some of the best literature to the end. They're here so that 2 Samuel 22 and the first part of 2 Samuel 23 will be set over against each other. And we'll observe that and we'll be able to draw lessons from that and reflect on that as we look at it together this evening. So, let's hear what they have to say. 2 Samuel 22 and the first Pete the uh, first part of Second Samuel 23. And as I read this, um, just note the difference. Note the time difference. And um, be asking yourself, what, it, what strikes me here? What stands out for me between these two passages, these two self-contained distinct passages of Scripture? So here is David's song of praise. Second Samuel 22. David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my saviour. From violent men you save me. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I am saved from my enemies. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called to the Lord, I called out to my God. From his temple he heard my voice, my cry came to his ears. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook, they trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils, consuming fire came from his mouth, burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. 
He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot arrows and scattered the enemies, bolts of lightning, and routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed, and the foundations of the earth laid bare. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath from his nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not done evil by turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. To the faithful you show yourself faithful. To the blameless you show yourself blameless. To the pure you show yourself pure. But to the crooked you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble. But your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. You are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord turns my darkness into light. With your help I can advance against a troop. With my God I can scale a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You give me your shield of victory. You stoop down to make me great. You broaden the path beneath me so that my ankles do not turn over. I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them completely and they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You made my adversaries bow at my feet. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight, and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them, to the Lord. But he did not answer. I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I pounded and trampled them like mud in the streets. You have delivered me from the attacks of my people. You have preserved me as the head of nations. People I did not know were subject to me. And foreigners come cringing to me. As soon as they hear me, they obey me. They all lose heart. They come trembling from their strongholds. The Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be God, the rock, my saviour. He is the God who avenges me, who puts the nations under me, who sets me free from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes. From violent men you rescued me. Therefore I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. These are the last words of David. The oracle of David, son of Jesse. The oracle of the man exalted by the Most High. 
the man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the morning, the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Is not my house right with God? Has he not made me with me an everlasting covenant? arranged and secured in every part will he not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire but evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns which are not gathered with the hand whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear they are burned up where they lie A lot of water has passed under the bridge since David came to power, since his empire was established and his throne secure. The remarkable thing about 2 Samuel is how open it is about the exercise of that power and the politics, sometimes the grubby politics and very bloody politics that were played out in Israel during David's reign. I don't think those of us who have been working our way through 2 Samuel over the last couple of months have any idealised views of David by this stage in our series. He's a very real human being, a very great man, but a very ordinary man in his flawedness, his sinfulness. However, the purpose of these two songs brought together at this point is to remind us that there is another power play going on behind the politics and power of David's court. The working out of God's purposes. Not only for David, but ultimately, as we are aware, in David's greater son, Jesus Christ. At the early stage of his reign, David asserts that whatever cunning, whatever planning, whatever courage he contributed to the outcome... In everything, it was the God of Israel who was in control. Look at those first seven verses of chapter 22, David's song of praise. The first four verses of it are really very striking. The constant use of the term my. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God is my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my saviour. It all seems to speak very much of David, unless you read it that way. But actually, David is speaking very much not of himself and a personal ownership of God, but of a very real personal experience of the goodness of God in very difficult situations. This is a constant refrain of what God has done for David, to which he bears witness among his own people. Because the other predominant terms in those first four verses are terms like deliverance, salvation, saviour, saved. So it's very striking in these opening verses that David is directing us away from himself 
and directing us very much towards God. And verses 5 to 7 are very striking because of the imagery, the poetry here, the way in which idea after idea, image after image is piled on top of the other to give us a sense of just how desperate David felt about the waves of death swirling around him, the cords of the grave coiling around him. And one of the first psalms that ever I really noticed, truthfully, uh, one of the first to ever catch my attention was Psalm 116, which had really very similar language, very visual language, in which David talks about, I love the Lord for he heard my voice, he heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. And this is the idea of someone whose very life is just caught in these massive kind of um, vines or creepers or whatever that's just got got around him and sucking the life out of him. And that death, the ground, is opening up and it's... It's swallowing him up and there's no escape. And that's how David feels in this particular situation. That's been part of his experience, not least in the years when he was on the run from Saul. So these opening verses are very vivid, these seven verses. But they're very clear in what they're trying to say. They're very clear in trying to depict David's sense of desperation. And also in trying to depict David's absolute gratitude to God. He does not take glory to himself for his own deliverance. He's very much focused and focusing our attention on God himself. And in verses 8 to 20 of chapter 22, the sense of appreciation, the sense of awe that God should do this and take an interest in him is really quite overwhelming. David pulls together every conceivable image to create the sense of power and might that rescued him. He just seems to take off with his language. You know, for him... It felt like the earth trembled and quaked, the foundations of the heavens shook because God was angry and God came to his rescue when his enemies were stacked against him. We talk about moving heaven and earth to get something done or to get help to someone when they're in need. And David is reflecting that kind of language. Heaven and earth were moved so that God could come to his rescue and God could deliver his servant. And then there's a sudden calm in the language from verse 17 to verse 20. This whole idea that the storm has stilled. The mountains are no longer splitting. The sea is no longer giving way. And God reaches down and takes hold of him. And draws him out of the deep waters. And it's as if at that moment in the poetry. Everything's beginning just to go silent. The rescue has been effected. And he's now in a spacious place. Very different sensation and a very different feel to him. So David is really using all his gifts and skills and powers as a a writer to direct us to what God has done for him. I mean, he could take all the credit to himself, but he doesn't. It emphasizes that once he was anointed by God, God was determined to see his anointed through. Some interesting statements in verses 21 to 28, very strong statements about David's blamelessness. Some experts who read this text find it all a bit incongruous. They think it's a bit rich coming from David who had killed Uriah after committing adultery with his wife Bathsheba. But I think rather than dismiss the wording as unworkable or unrealistic, we need to just revisit the likely context. This is just after the death of Saul. It's after the establishment of David's throne. There was nothing more important to David 
than the conviction that he should not touch the Lord's anointed. Do you remember how many times he had opportunity to kill Saul, to get rid of him? But there was this conviction that if he did what was right by God and not touching the Lord's anointed, God would do what was right by him as his anointed successor from Saul. And I think that's very much the background to here. I don't think David is proclaiming a total sinlessness in his own life. But in this whole area, this whole experience, and it is all related to being delivered from the hand of Saul, he did what was right, and he did. It is one of the things to his credit, beyond doubt. He had many opportunities. He could have turned Jonathan against his father. Um, he could have taken opportunities to slay Saul when Saul was in the cave relieving himself and David and his men were there. They could have done it at night time when they'd sneaked into the camp. There's so many occasions. But he didn't, and he was blameless in this, and he feels that God has rewarded him accordingly. Verses 29 to 46 are just an extraordinary explosion of praise to God for strength in every situation and at every turn. And the thing that's striking about this is it's not really a very normal thing for a king, for someone in power and authority. Kings, like our modern democratic politicians, often feel like they need to be seen to have achieved. There are very few leaders in our world, in our political world, in our religious world, very few leaders who would attribute all their strength to someone else. It's very hard to give all the glory away. But the remarkable feature of David is that at this point in his life, as the kingdom is being established, there's no sense of weakness in attributing all his strength to God. Indeed, such is God's role in the life of his people that the man who has God on his side is more revered than the man who achieves things in his own strength. And then verses 47 to 51 wind the whole of the psalm up with a very fitting conclusion and summary of praise. The thing that strikes me when you move into chapter 23, and it's only verses 2 to 7 that actually form David's words, is the brevity. I would rather have expected that David's last words would have been longer than his first. No disrespect to anyone present, but sometimes that's the case with people as they get older. They have more to say, not less. They have more upon which to reflect, understandably, not less. They have more stories to pass on to the next generation, not fewer. The other thing that strikes me about these verses in chapter 23 is there's less of David and his exploits in this psalm. Mind you, despite some pretty catastrophic failures in his life, it's no mean feat to look back on 40 years of kingship because by this time he had ruled for 40 years. And especially in the brutal and unstable world of that time, that was really quite something. Nevertheless, when you set these two things together, chapter 22 and these few verses from chapter 23, there's a much more sober note in chapter 23. There's no exuberant praise. There's no strong, bold protestations of blamelessness. That would be inappropriate. And yet there are three main ideas in the psalm which are very strong. In verse 2 you have this very strong idea that God raises up his anointed. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through him. The Spirit of the Lord put the word in his tongue. God was empowering. And in verses 3 and 4 the second strong sort of theme in there that God sets his standards for ruling. 
And it's not that David's saying, this is me. This is what God said to me. When one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning. And David knows at this stage in his life that while he has sought to do his best in many situations, the light is not just as bright as it might have been had he been completely faithful to God in all his decision-making and ruling. And yet, the third great theme in this is God's faithfulness to his word, which comes out in verse 5. Is not my house right with God? Has he not made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part? It's not, and is my house is not my house right with God, for I have kept it right and done everything right. It is that God has kept his covenant promises. It's a very interesting contrast. And David, it seems to me, reckons that through the discipline of God and God's judgment and God's grace, God has brought him through and God has held fast to the promises he made so long ago. Verse 6 is intriguing. It just sounds very like the reflections of a much wiser man who advises others to keep evil people at arm's length. Our version of this phrase would be, don't touch them with a barge pole. I think these two passages are a very interesting and very strong contrast. But I think chapter 23 and those verses from 2 to 7 are very much in keeping with the story that we've heard. It would have been incongruous if we had had some completely over-the-top showcase Sam at the end. This is sober, it's serious and reflective. And it seems to me to be an appropriate conclusion to a roller coaster reign. What can we take away from these two passages this evening? I'm sure if you take time just to reflect on them, there will be many things that will strike you and maybe many things that will challenge you and help you. Two things that have helped me as I've reflected on this that I want to leave with you. The first one is simply this theme of the faithfulness of God. Joel had already chosen some of our songs this evening reflecting this theme. In these two passages, we're spanning a whole generation. Forty years is encompassed between these two passages of scripture, chapter 22 and chapter 23. There's a lot of pain, a lot of loss involved over 40 years. For life is never devoid of suffering. Either self-inflicted suffering or that which comes through circumstances beyond our control. It's never far away. David has lost at least three sons. He lost the son that was born to Bathsheba. He lost his eldest son, Amnon, killed by his brother Absalom. He lost Absalom, killed by the commander of his army, his nephew, Joab. He almost certainly lost another son, Kiliab, or Daniel, as he was also known. We know that he was in there um, in the family line. 2 Samuel 3 tells us that, but he just disappears off scripture. We can only assume that he too died. David, at this stage in his life, in his last words, is no stranger to loss. David, in these last words when he's writing 2 Samuel 23, or what's there in 2 Samuel 23, is no stranger to shame or to discipline. He has experienced the shame of being exposed by Nathan the prophet as a liar and a fraud, as a murderer, an adulterer. 
He's experienced a very public shame of running from Jerusalem, from his son Absalom. He's experienced the shame of being a very powerful king, but not powerful enough to tame Joab and his brother. All our lives are like this. There is loss. There is shame. There is regret. But also, like David, for the believer, there is also grace. And the grace of God is never seen more clearly than in the faithful, gracious supervision of God over a generation, over a lifetime. Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee, writes the hymn writer. To those of you who are younger, and that's the vast majority of you here this evening, let me encourage you for the years ahead. When you make a mess, it's not the end. When you feel ashamed, it might be the beginning of deeper wisdom. If you're willing to be open before God and not afraid of your reputation or how others perceive you, you will prove in your lifetime the faithfulness of God. Sometimes in our lives, God's help comes when you're under pressure. And it sounds like the mountains are cracking and the earth is going to shake. It's just so dramatic, it's so surprising, it takes you so much by storm. And sometimes it comes in the still, small voice, as it did for Moses. When the fire and the wind and the storm has passed. But it always comes. Even if it comes with chastisement, it always comes. For God is faithful. In the context of the New Testament, there's one passage which stands out for me as a powerful exhortation to faithfulness and confidence in God's faithfulness. It may not strike you that way initially, but it's Hebrews chapter 12. You'll find it on page 1210 of the copies of the Bible. And you'll notice, if you turn to it, that the editors of the NIV have put at the top of it, God disciplines his sons. And yet there's hardly a passage in scripture that better speaks of the faithfulness of God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart in your struggle against sin. You haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you've forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. So endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. But what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. 
Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained in it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. The writer of the Hebrews does a lot of reflecting on the Old Testament scriptures and the the great stories and truths of the Old Testament scriptures. And um, he brings these people who are new Christians, uh, to a point where he wants to really exhort them to be confident in Jesus Christ and confident that God's faithfulness will be demonstrated to them even through hardship, even through discipline. It's the sign of God's faithfulness. And there will not be a single life lived in this room that does not share in the experiences of David to some degree or another. There is not a life in this room that cannot, if we hold to God, even in the midst of our weakness and our shame, prove the faithfulness of God. For God is faithful. Second thing that strikes me, and I want to leave with you from this passage or these passages this evening, is simply the reference to the power of God. It's very interesting, as I have on the screen here. Sorry, as I have on the screen here. Either side of these two psalms are the great exploits of David's mighty men. It makes amazing reading. It's um, stirring stuff if you're into war films and that kind of thing. If you're squeamish, um, you're best not reading too much of um, 2 Samuel 23 or 2 Samuel 21. Let's look a bit of it anyway. 2 Samuel 23, um, verse 9. There was Eliezer. One of the three mighty men, there were three men in particular who stood out as warriors. He was with David when they taunted the, Philist- when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamon for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eliezer, but only to strip the dead. Do you know what it's like when you've been working with a hammer, you've been working with something and you've just been working or you're hanging onto your motorbike handlebars or your pushbike handlebars like grim death and you go to let go and your hand feels like it's frozen to it. This guy took them on by himself and couldn't release his grip afterwards. Quite a character. There was Joab's brother, verses 18 and 19, just over the column there, Abishai brother of Joab, son of Zariah, the chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed. And so he became as famous as the three. Quite remarkable. You find the same kind of thing in chapter 21, just back the other way, verses 15 to 22, that little section. People like Jonathan. Do you remember Jonathan? We met him, not the Jonathan, son of Saul, who died with his father on the mountain, but Jonathan, nephew of David, who advised Amnon how to get Tamar, his half-sister. you remember him? And the man who ran to bring the message to David about Absalom being killed? He was no wimp. Verses 20 to 21, in another battle which took place at Gath, there was a huge man 
with six fingers in each hand and six toes in each foot, 24 in all. You need some nail clipper for that, wouldn't you? He was also descended from Rapha. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. These were strong, powerful men. These were not weak people who ran around playing at things. These were fearsome people. People that I think I would have just been utterly terrified in the presence of. And there were these great men of battle. And they're either side of these songs of praise. They protected David. They fought the great battles with him. They're the people who in physical military terms made David's kingdom secure. But only up to a point. And I think that's why they're put here at this point on either side of these psalms. Because what lay at the heart of things was really the power of God. And that's what David wants to draw our attention to. In personal life and in church life, we can see the great exploits that people do. We can look at the profile of a church and assume you've got all you need. But in the kingdom of God, the power lies with God. And you and I and the church must never forget that. Human endeavor can be a thrilling thing. Human faithfulness and courage in spiritual terms can be inspiring and is used by God. People are used by God to establish his kingdom, to build his church. But the power lies with God. And if God isn't in it, nothing of substance is going to happen. The Apostle Paul understands this and as he writes uh, to the churches particularly the church in Ephesus and the church in Colossae he tells them how he prays for them and he prays for them in this kind of way if you turn to Ephesians chapter 1 we can read a little bit about his a little of his prayer for the, the church there And in Ephesians 1, you'll find the same kind of thing in Colossians 1, in verses 9 to 13. You find that when Paul prays for the churches, he prays that they will understand where the power of kingdom life comes from, and that they might experience it in their lives. So in verse 15, (coughs) excuse me, he begins by talking about just about the degree to which he prays for them. In verse 17, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ... The glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. There are times in the life of Christians and in the life of churches when the power of God is demonstrated in extraordinary ways. But Paul does not link 
a knowledge of the power of God at work in us when he writes to the Ephesians and the Colossians with anything that is particularly extraordinary. He does not associate it in these contexts with any particularly charismatic demonstrations of the Spirit of God at work. But he speaks openly about the necessity of knowing the power of God at work. That power that raised Christ from the dead because it is that power that enables Christians to do the difficult thing. And the difficult thing is not the spectacular. The difficult thing is the ordinary. The difficult thing is faithfulness. Day by day. Getting up today to follow Christ. Getting out of bed tomorrow to follow Christ. Getting out of bed the next day to follow Christ. To follow Christ into every conversation. To follow Christ into every challenge and every difficulty. To follow Christ into every joy and new experience. The ordinary things of life are the difficult things because they're the things you keep doing day after day after day. And Paul prays that you might know the power of God, the power that raised Christ from the dead, to simply be faithful Christians. And these words of David encourage me in that respect because he's very clear that the power came not simply from the mighty men who surrounded him and who surround this passage of scripture, but it came from God. It came from God's call upon his life, God's anointing, God's gift of his spirit to him, God's power that transcended his stupid decisions, his bad decisions, his wrong decisions, and allows him after 40 years of rule, including all of those things, from glory to shame, to continue to bear witness to God's faithfulness and God's power. My prayer is that that will be our experience. And particularly if you're at the early stage of your Christian life, the early stage of life, as we were thinking this morning, maybe some of you here will be the the 150-year-old generation. Whatever, however long you live. May you know the the great joy of a lifetime being able to look back on the faithfulness and the power of God. Seek it, hold on to it, and live in the glory of it.